So today I was scheduled to go give a talk at a local private school to parents and administrators about nutrition. Funny enough, I got up early, got my workout in, drove my two kids to school, drove about an hour, only to find out that the lecture is actually scheduled for next week. <laughs> so I share this with you because if you feel like your head is up your you-know-what, perhaps you'll take comfort in the fact that um, so is Dr. Adrian's. I'm right there with you. It's a crazy time right now, crazy things happening all across the world. And actually, this kind of piggybacks on what I wanted to talk to the, the school about. And so I thought I would share it with all of you on today's Health Bite. I was asked to speak about nutrition. And as I was putting the talk together, I couldn't stop thinking about this really shocking recommendation that came out last week by the U.S. Preventative Task Force Services, uh, Preventative Services, that recommended that all children ages eight and over should now be screened for anxiety annually during their well-child visits. And let's think about that. Age eight and over. I think it's been made very clear that we've all experienced an uptick in stress and anxiety, even before the pandemic, and particularly during and even after the pandemic. But to think that our children are suffering as well, and that kids as young as age eight need to be screened is, is very shocking, maybe not so much so shocking, but upsetting, frightening. So I want to address that here with you today and, and also talk about how nutrition can really help combat stress and anxiety. Now, before I go on, I, I want to redefine our definition of nutrition, because when we think of nutrition, invariably, we think about food or diet, diet, which is really defined as the food that we eat, a vegan diet, a Mediterranean diet, a cow's diet in our culture is always equivalent to restriction or a restrictive diet and weight loss. But I want to broaden how we approach the term diet. But more importantly, I want to broaden how we approach nutrition as a whole and define it as the many ways in which we can fuel ourselves, the many ways in which we can nourish ourselves. And that not only includes food, but includes movement, sleep, nature, and mental hygiene, or as I like to call it, the mind's diet. So I want to take some time to go through these various pillars of health, physical health, and mental health, emotional health, and well-being, and talk about how we can use these pillars not only to promote our body's health, but also the mind. Because what we know to be true is that the very same things that are good for our body are also good for our mind. So it's a win-win. So first, let's talk about food, nourishment, nutrients. And let's just call it out like it is, uh, which is that we make food so complicated. Um, again, we talk about food in terms of diet and restriction. 
anytime we think about what to eat, it's in the setting of calories and a restrictive diet. And we're doing crazy things like fasting, fiending on beef and butter. The cabbage soup diet was something that was once popular, the blood type diet. Some people have got us convinced that we need to pee on a keto stick in order to figure out if we've got this food thing right. I mean, really, it's kind of crazy if you think about it. It's not so complicated. The foods that we have always known to be good for us are good for us. So trust your intuition, trust your gut, trust what you've always known to be true, what your mom told you was true. And the first thing I want to address again is this notion of comfort food. If you listened to the podcast last week, it was only nine minutes long, but I just want to do a little quick synopsis, which is that comfort food is a misnomer. Now we have been coaxed into using food for comfort. We give our children lollipops, when they come out of the doctor's office, we soothe their hurt and upset with an ice cream after school. We bake pies and eat fried foods to soothe our own comfort. And I don't want to vilify food. If you enjoy eating those things once in a while, I do too. Knock yourself out and enjoy those foods. But when we use food to soothe, we hurt ourselves, mind and body. It's clear how the foods that we typically use for soothing, fried food, baked goods, sugary processed foods are bad for our bodies. We already know the correlation between that kind of food and weight gain, diabetes, colon cancer. That was something that we talked about several podcasts ago. But what about the effect of these foods on our mental and emotional well-being? Well, studies have shown that regular consumption of what we use for, quote, comfort is associated with a higher incidence of depression and anxiety. While the types of foods that we know to be good for our body. For example, study came out that showed five servings of fruit and vegetables a day, not only is good for our bodies, of course, but also improves mood, improves cognition, improves creativity and focus. In uh, workplaces across America, they are serving cut up fruit. Many of our companies have fruit carts in the workplace. Is it because they want to reduce the risk of heart attack in our employer uh, employees? Maybe, but also they know that eating these foods, consuming fruits and vegetables, for example, improves focus, creativity, cognition, and that's good for their bottom line. So I want you to rethink comfort food. If you want to eat yummy food because it's yummy once in a while, go for it. But using food for comfort is a misnomer. It actually is comforting only in the moment. But once that dopamine hit subsides, we are left irritable, cranky, tired, lethargic, and depleted. So now let's get into the macronutrients of various foods. And first, I want to talk about carbs. Carbohydrates are over vilified in our culture. And let's remember that not all carbs are the same. A piece of an asparagus is a carbohydrate. And so is a Pop-Tart. And I think we can all agree that there's a difference between the two. So let's not lump all carbohydrates under the same umbrella and let's break it down. You've heard, of course, about simple versus complex carbohydrates. Basically, simple means that it's digested simply. It's simplified so that it can be taken up quickly in the gut and into the bloodstream. So simple carbohydrates are those in which 
very minimal digestion and processing needs to occur in order to take up that carbohydrate or simple sugar into the bloodstream. So what happens when we have simple carbohydrates, um, like sugary foods, rice, white breads, certain cereals, because that, that carbohydrate is already simplified, again, it gets rapidly digested, taken up into the bloodstream and causes a spike in our blood sugar. When the body perceives a rapid spike in blood sugar, it kind of freaks out. It knows that it can't have a lot of sugar kind of hanging around in the bloodstream. It's not good for the organs. It's not good for immunity. It increases our risk of infection. So what does our body do? It sends a signal to the pancreas. Hey there, we got a load of sugar in the bloodstream. I need some insulin stat. And so then the pancreas responds in turn with a huge surge of insulin to manage that blood sugar, which then causes our blood sugar to plummet. What happens when our blood sugar goes from very high to very low? Our body perceives that drop in blood sugar as a threat. Number one, it will, it will send out a whole slew of counter-regulatory uh, hormones to get us moving, to get us motivated for more food consumption. So it dials up hunger. It dials up craving, craving for more sugar because now our blood sugar has bottomed out. It increases the release of excitatory neurotransmitters and hormones, which also create a feeling of anxiety and angst, which is why we have what's called the quote sugar crash. We consume simple carbohydrates. We get a spike in blood sugar. For a moment, we are jazzed from all that sugar but then our blood sugar plummets and that is associated with a crash. So rather than having simple sugars, let's go for more complex carbohydrates. There is no need to vilify beans, grains, legumes. These carbohydrates are complex, which means that it requires more work for the body to break it down and to digest. And as a result, it results in a more steady gradual rise of blood sugar in the bloodstream and a more gradual fall of blood sugar. This is perceived by the body as sustained energy and does not cause that same uh, knee jerk insulin response, which causes our blood sugar to plummet. So complex carbohydrates are good carbohydrates. They are good for blood sugar. They are good for energy. They are good for mood because again, that steady rise of energy and blood sugar, as opposed to the rapid rise and fall. And they're also good for our bodies. So while we want to vilify carbohydrates, it has been shown that having one serving of fiber from good carbs a day prolongs life. Let's also remember the Mediterranean diet, which is the most widely studied and the best way of eating on the planet is primarily carbohydrates, but it is the good carbohydrates. So don't shine away from them. Of course, fruits and veggies are also carbs. And we talked about how studies have shown that five servings a day can increase creativity, cognition, focus, 
can help mood is associated with a reduced incidence of mood disorders, including depression and anxiety. And five servings may feel like a lot. So meet yourself where you're at and just commit to increasing from there. Are you not consuming any fruits and veggies? Throw an apple into your purse and have it as a snack. Perhaps consider making a salad and starting off your family dinner with a salad every night. Meet yourself where you're at and start to incorporate more fruits and veggies in your diet. In addition to the um, vitamins and minerals and antioxidants, or or rather as a result of the vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants, we also can support our mood and our mental health and well-being. For example, fruits and veggies are high in B vitamins. B vitamins, which are found in leafy green vegetables, have been shown to be associated with better mood and cognition. Also magnesium, which is replete in our fruits and vegetables, has mood enhancing benefits. So sure, you can take a pill every day, or you can actually consume the entire fruit or the entire vegetable. And as a result, get all of the vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, as well as the fiber as a result. Next macronutrient I want to talk about is protein. So protein is really important for satiety. Protein is the macronutrient that helps curb hunger the longest. And when we are hungry, we also release a whole slew of excitatory hormones and neurotransmitters. Hunger prompts anxiety. Why? Because from an evolutionary perspective, hunger meant death, right? So the body evolved to notify you to react to hunger so that you won't die, so that you'll go out and hunt for more calories and more nutrients. So another tip is to satiate yourself and your children, by the way, by incorporating protein in every meal. This is so important in breakfast time, especially because most breakfast items are simple sugars, cereal, Eggo waffles, pancakes. And hey, I'm not here to judge. I will tell you that my nine-year-old child is obsessed with these breakfast items, but I negotiate with her. I don't strive for perfection. I don't say we can't ever eat these foods, but I tell her you need to consume some protein or we alternate. If there's a day in which she's had some processed, basically fast food breakfast like cereal, then I will either throw in a complex carb or uh, a protein with it, or I will say the next day we really need to have eggs or Greek yogurt or something that is high in protein. And the reason is, again, because the protein will help satiate them so that they don't crash between breakfast and lunch and get irritable and hungry and lethargic and cranky, but actually will have sustained satiety so that they can last all the way to lunch and preserve their their attention span until then. The last nutrient that I want to talk about or macronutrient is of course fat and good fats are good. Now, when we're talking about weight loss for the adults, I recommend to my patients to be mindful of how much fat they consume. Just because a fat is a good fat doesn't mean that it's not calorically dense. And so when we're talking about weight loss, we need to still be mindful that even though avocados are good for you, too much avocado is too much. Even though nuts are good for you, too many nuts is just too much. But today we're not talking about weight loss. We are talking about cognitive and mental, emotional health. 
And incorporating a small amount of good fats into the diet is helpful. Omega-3s that are found in fish, for example, amongst other foods, make up the myelin sheath, the protective covering around our nerves. It's also a component of our cell membranes, as well as an important component of our brain cells or our neurons. So incorporate good fats, avocados, olive oil, nuts, seeds, but just incorporate them modestly. And then finally, I think we've already talked about this, you know, processed foods as a class, but let's just remind you that processed foods are processed, which means that they have, they are devoid of nutrients. They have been worked on so that all of the vitamins, minerals, fiber, and nutrients have been milled out in the processing. And then what they do is they enrich it with nutrients. <laughs> Processed foods get all the good stuff eliminated so that it's basically this pulp that is not nutrition, but just filler. And then they try and trick us by enriching it with B vitamins, with folate, with niacin. And then they say, oh, this cereal or bread or Pop-Tart is high in vitamins because now we have enriched it or put those vitamins back in. Processed foods are not good for our mental and emotional well-being. There's also a lot of data that has shown that processed foods don't result in the same response in terms of hunger hormones as the real thing. So you don't even get satiated by processed foods. And then as I reported a few podcasts ago in our health news, processed foods is also highly correlated with colon cancer, among other cancers. So again, this is not about um, the nocebo effect or telling you all the things that you're doing wrong, but just offering you knowledge so that you can do things a little bit better. We don't need to be perfect in order to, to do better for our minds and bodies. Before I move on to the next pillar, I just want to talk a little bit about the lost art of cooking. And this really is a lost art. And I get it. We are so busy. Moms and dads are busy working, are busy caretaking their children, their parents, their family members, their pets. They're busy managing life's affairs. They're busy trying to keep their heads afloat. And then meanwhile, there's an abundance of easy resources for food, DoorDash, Uber Eats, right? It's easy to come home and just grab your phone and order food. Now, again, I don't want to suggest that we should all whip out our starched white aprons and start cooking like Martha Stewart. I don't know why I always pick on her, but to me, she's like the quintessential woman in the kitchen, but we don't have to do that, but we can make small steps like pre-planning, Take some time during the weekend when you do have more time and be intentional about what you want to eat that week. Maybe you'll buy some ingredients that you can use for one or two dinners that week. Maybe you can engage your family and your children to cook one or two meals that you can then put in the refrigerator or freeze for later that week. Again, you don't have to be perfect in order to be effective, but cooking homemade meals is important. When we eat food from restaurants, when we eat out or order in, that food is highly prepared with fat, sugar, salt. 
In fact, they've shown that one meal at a restaurant has equivalent to our 24-hour requirement or a one-day requirement for salt in just one meal, which of course increases our risk of high blood pressure, uh, stroke, heart disease. So let's bring back the art of cooking. We don't have to be super fancy about it, but let's think about being more intentional about what we eat and how we eat. Pillar number two is movement. I don't like to call it exercise because exercise, again, has been um, married to weight loss, but the benefits of moving your body far outweigh what is good for weight or weight or weight maintenance. We know that moving our body is protective against virtually every disease known to man, heart disease, diabetes, dyslipidemia, blood pressure. Moving your body regularly reduces the risk of numerous cancers, including ovarian, breast cancer, prostate, and colon cancer. It's been associated with reduced dementia, cognitive decline, Alzheimer's disease. And of course, going back to our initial topic here, it reduces the risk of mood disorders, depression, and anxiety. When it comes to our children, the guidelines recommend 60 minutes of physical activity per day. And yet less than a quarter of our kids get this kind of exercise. Exercise is particularly important for our children because it's been shown to also enhance their self-confidence, improve their mood, help them regulate their bodies, their emotions, and help them relax, and is associated with lower symptoms of depression and anxiety. Physical activity also enhances cognition. Studies have shown that students who are physically active tend to have better grades, better school attendance, reduce behavioral problems, and increase cognitive performance, including doing better on memory tests. There's actually a study that was done on medical students in which they divided med students into two groups, gave them a test, and then had group A go sit in a lounge and chit chat, and had group B go out and do some strenuous exercise for 30 minutes, brought them back in and retested them. And it showed that those students who had actually engaged in exercise did better on subsequent testing as compared to the ones who just took a break and, and relaxed. So this is really hard data. And there's, there's a lot of it out there that shows that when we exercise and move our bodies, we do better cognitively. And for our kids right now, that's so important. I tell my children all the time, don't study longer. Don't spend more time studying, study better, be more effective in your studying by bringing in these other tools that help enhance your cognition. And one of those tools is exercise. I also want to point out that there seems to be a extra benefit of vigorous physical activity. So what is vigorous activity? That's the kind of exercise that is hard. It makes you sweat. It makes you pant and huff and puff. It's the kind of exercise that we shine away from because it's just uncomfortable in the moment. But if we can reframe vigorous activity in our mind, let's reframe it from discomfort to, to a challenge to, wow, look at what my body is capable of accomplishing and get the secondary benefit of improving our mood. Because studies show that when we tolerate, when we expose our bodies to physical stress and learn how to tolerate that physical stress, 
we are better able to tolerate emotional and mental stress as well. Exposing ourselves to vigorous physical activity, even if it's just short bouts of activity, helps us and makes us better able to tolerate emotional and psychological distress as well. So try it out. Try out just minutes. It doesn't have to be 60 minutes of running on a treadmill. Start with five minutes and see where that takes you. Pillar number three is sleep. Even before the pandemic, sleep was deprioritized. Sleep takes a backseat to homework, extracurricular activities, and now time spent on scrolling on the phone. For adults, it's taken a backseat to answering emails and working on our laptop and also spending time on our screens, watching Netflix or scrolling on our phone on social media. But sleep is really important. It's not just a time to check out. Sleep is a time in which our brain performs critical housekeeping activities. It literally is using that time to remove toxins from our neurons or our brain cells. Sleep is also a time where we consolidate our learning and memory. So again, when we are counseling our children, work smarter, not harder, right? Don't spend your time staying up all night, cramming for an exam, and then missing out on the kind of sleep that's necessary to consolidate that learning and memory. Get in your Zs, turn off the lights a little bit earlier and use that time for the rest and relaxation that your brain needs in order to retain that information. And in fact, the studies again show that sleep and cognition are very closely correlated. We also know that sleep is very important to long-term cognition as well, as sleep deprivation is associated with a higher risk of dementia, cognitive decline, and even Alzheimer's disease. Studies have shown that men who have or who experience sleep deprivation in midlife are more likely to suffer from Alzheimer's disease as elderly adults. And researchers have found the same proteins, the same amyloid proteins that are implicated in Alzheimer's disease are found in the bloodstream of these subjects when they're exposed to sleep deprivation. So let's make sleep a priority. Sleep is my third pillar of health and well-being. Number four. So I think I shared at the beginning of this podcast that I made the very silly mistake of driving an hour to get to a talk that was scheduled for next week. But the upside was that I had to drive down PCH, which is alongside the ocean. I'm very blessed to live in a place where I am very close to nature and then had to take old Topanga road up into the mountains and drove the windy streets amongst the trees. And as I was driving, I was really mindful actually of how beautiful it was around me and how soothing it was actually to take that drive in nature. And in fact, it has been shown that spending time in green space, so trees and mountainous areas, as well as blue space, which is water, bodies of water, and even the clouds. So essentially being in nature is associated with improved mood. Being in nature literally will 
downregulate or dampen our sympathetic nervous system. That is the flight, fight, and freeze pathway. So the part of our nervous system that triggers us to react and to act, the stress response, and it upregulates the parasympathetic nervous system. So the part of our nervous system that is responsible for rest and relaxation. It has been shown that just being in nature for minutes and even merely watching nature videos. So you don't even have to get into nature, but just watching videos of nature helps reduce heart rate, blood pressure, and skin temperature. These are all metrics that are linked to our nervous system, suggesting once again, that being in nature or viewing nature on a screen even will dial back the sympathetic nervous system and dial up the parasympathetic nervous system. It's also been shown in students that exposing them to nature, taking a walk in nature can enhance cognition and improves test scores. They've also shown this in children who have ADHD that being in nature reduces um, outbursts and improves their uh, behavior or reduces behavioral problems in the class setting. And again, lowers stress and improves mood. So being in nature really has a whole host of cognitive and mental health benefits. So take time to be in nature. It doesn't have to be a whole hour. It doesn't even have to be every day, but do this with your children. Maybe take the long route home, take the phone out of their hands while you're driving and ask them to just look outside and view nature. Maybe before bedtime, you have them watch a video with you, a nature video or even at the least put on nature sounds. I sleep to rain sounds with my daughter every night and it really has a soothing effect. So pillar number four is nature. And finally, I wanna talk about mental hygiene. Uh, what I also like to call your mind's diet. I've said this before, uh, but it's worth repeating that it is said that we have 60,000 thoughts per day and 60 to 80% of those thoughts are negative. Now, I recently spent some time with Dr. Samina Shaheem. She is a cognitive behavioral psychologist in the UK. She was interviewed on Health Bite probably close to a year ago. You can go back and find that episode. It was wonderful. And I spent some time with her this past week. We did a retreat with her and some 10 other wonderful, nine other wonderful women helping teach others how to live a life by design. And one thing I was reminded of was what Dr. Shaheem had told me in our podcast, which is that she is, quote, militant about her thoughts. She said, I am militant about what I think. And I thought to myself, wow, that is a really strong statement. And what she meant by that is that we are in control, right? We are the gatekeeper of our thoughts, what we allow in, what we choose to focus and ruminate on. We have power of choice in choosing what kinds of thoughts 
we want to spend our time with. It's important to first note uh, note and point out that thinking, ruminating, it's part of the human condition. In fact, we have evolved to ruminate. Think about it. Our ancestors who lived amongst dangerous animals had to constantly scan the environment, scan the environment for danger in order to stay alive. But we don't live amongst tigers anymore. We live amongst social media and Instagram and, you know, negative people perhaps around us. Sometimes we keep toxic company around us. And sometimes that toxicity comes from ourselves. So we have a mechanism of always scanning, always reviewing, always ruminating. But we can train the mind. We can train ourselves to focus less on the negative and more on the positive. And when I talk about this, my patients will often say, oh, I I just can't do that. I just don't know how to do that. This is just how I am. And what I want to say is this is how we all are. This is the human condition, but that does not mean that we can't do better for ourselves. So what can be done? Well, there are tips and tricks. The first of which is meditation. And it doesn't have to be a long, you know, a long time spent in meditation in order to achieve benefits. So essentially, when we spend time meditating, and there are so many apps that you can download on your phone that can help you do this, you can also Google YouTube meditation videos and get uh, videos or guided meditations for free. But when we meditate, we literally increase the mass of brain cells in the amygdala. So the part of the brain that is involved in emotional regulation, studies have shown that when we engage in meditation consistently over time, that we actually grow more neurons, more brain cells as shown by functional MRI in that area of the brain that's involved in emotional regulation. So commit to it. And if you think that you can't do meditation, That's precisely the reason why you need to try, because the fact that you can't reel in your mind means that you need to cultivate that skill, cultivate the skill of refocusing your attention away from uh, the crazy that we all spend our time thinking to moments of pause and clarity. Breathing exercises is another way of doing this. And actually taking deep breaths not only has been shown to help refocus the mind, but also refocus the body as we also will reduce sympathetic drive when we engage in deep breathing exercises. I also have some great podcasts on breathing, including a interview with Caroline Gamble. She is She is the health breathing guru for Thrive Global, Ariana Huffington's conglomerate. And in that podcast, she gives us some very specific and structured tips on how to breathe healthfully and mindfully. So breathing is another way that we can help master our mind. The final final tip I want to offer is 
realigning our thoughts and our negative thinking. And what I mean by that is reframing negative thoughts. So whenever you think about something negative or our children say something negative, like I'm too stupid. I'm too incapable. I can never do that. I'm not fit enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not whatever enough. We can help our children reframe that thought. Really? Is it really true that you are not X enough? Or is it that you slipped up or you made a mistake or you haven't practiced enough or you haven't been trained enough? Let's help our children reframe negative thoughts and in doing so also adopt a growth mindset, which is we don't have to be and cannot be perfect um, ever but really we can't expect ourselves to be perfect before we even try. So often we send this message to our children that if you don't get it the first shot or they pick up the message somewhere along the line that if they can't do something right away, then they just can't do it. Negative thinking. When the truth is that we can cultivate skills when we engage in a growth mindset and actually Children who believe in a growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset, that means a mindset that teaches them that they can grow, evolve, and do better as opposed to a fixed mindset like, oh, I am smart from the get-go. The kids that can adopt a growth mindset fare much better in the long run in terms of academic and other kinds of success as compared to those children who've always just been taught that they're smart, because at some point they will outlive their natural smarts. Whereas the growing child, the growing mindset will never outdo their smarts because they know that they are always involved in the process of growing, of evolving, of massaging, of doing better. So let's cultivate mental hygiene in our children and in ourselves, by the way, by adopting some of the tools like breathing exercises and mindfulness and meditation, and by reframing our negative thoughts, by adopting a growth mindset and managing perfectionism. And I want to end with this, which is, this is not about making ourselves feel bad. I always hate when I listen to something or I go to a parenting lecture and at the end I'm left with, again, the nocebo effect, which is, oh, all the things that I'm not doing right. I want to promote a placebo effect and I want to promote the fact that small changes really have big impact. Our bodies and our minds have this kind of deep intelligence that want us to do well. Our body and our minds want us to be better, to do better. And that's why it responds to small changes. When it comes to weight loss, for example, take a patient who is 100 pounds overweight, who has out of control diabetes, get them to lose 10, 15 pounds and blood sugar comes down. That is really profound. That means that we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to have normal, quote, normal weight or BMI, 
which is often um, promoted out there in order to do better for our bodies. Small changes have tremendous impact. So I want you to think back to this podcast when we're done. Think about the five pillars, food, movement, sleep, nature, and mental hygiene. And write down one take-home message in each category, one small thing that you can commit to changing and making big impact in your life. I really hope that this podcast was helpful for you. Honestly, sharing this information with you was helpful for me as well. If you love it and you think it is of benefit, please share this podcast with one person that you love. You can also go to dradrianudeem.com and sign up for my newsletter. If you prefer to get information in written form, you can get these tips via newsletter every week. I hope you have an amazing week. Go out there and do something great for yourself. And I look forward to seeing you here again, same time, same place next week on Health Bite. Have a great week and until then.